Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Uh, continuing with our space theme from the last couple episodes. Uh, this week we are going to do Ron Howard's 1995 uh, opus and perhaps Ron Howard's best film, Apollo 13. Uh, welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Um, this is a really... This is a good one. Like there, you know, I I think I think I do like the right stuff a little more, but I'm literally splitting hairs. It would be, it's a toss up as to which of these movies I've seen more, and this, I've seen these movies a lot. I don't know. I just think this movie's really. It's it, you know we're gonna talk about Ron. Ha- you and I both really like Ron Howard a lot, and you know this movie illustrates many of the things he does so well. He takes a complex subject matter frequently related to technical things or occurrences on a job or in a sort of work environment and makes them where they're complicated and maybe objectively dry and he makes them interesting and he makes them have meaning and have and he makes you tension. care about the details right he makes you care about the details and he makes the details seem relevant to the to the outcome in a way that it's not easy to do and he also, you know, what I always say is he he juggles and keeps so many balls in the air and has them all moving until a grand finale. And he moves things on that direction, in, in, on that rail, uh, really well. And, and, you know, like, the and I'm thinking about this again in comparison to The Right Stuff and First Man, whereas First Man especially and uh, The Right Stuff were very much about tone. You know, this is not really about tone. Like, this is, you know, like they call cop shows, like in the TV business, they call cop shows like police procedurals or medical shows or medical procedurals. Like, this is like a space procedural. Like, two-thirds of this movie is concerned with the mechanics of what they are doing to solve the problem in front of them right at that moment, kind of kind of in that ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. And the movie sort of walks you through technical problem and solution, technical problem and solution, which ends up with them splashing down. Um, so, like, it's a very different tone than the other movies. And whereas, especially The Right Stuff played fast and loose with a lot of the timeline and events, this movie goes to great lengths not to do that mm-hmm. and to try to present the events on screen as accurately as possible, which is really hard to do because like if you go online to like the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal or the Apollo Flight Journal and you listen to or you read the transcripts of the Apollo missions, which actually if you're really, really, really interested in it, it's great. But I mean it is it's just hundreds of hours of technical jargon. Literally mm-hmm. hundreds of hours. It's it's like it's like listening to somebody assemble a car, you know, for for forty hours straight. Yep. Like that's what it's like. It's yeah, just but with more tech, acronyms. Tech, 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 tech. Right, exactly. You know, um, it's all acronyms. Yeah, <laughs> um, I I read that both Ron Howard and Tom Hanks said that this was their best film. Hmm. Which is kind of interesting. 
Um, do you want to do a brief summary? I think I think most people know it, but as is our habit. If you're listening to Dorky Podcasts, you probably know what. what well, if you're especially listening to the podcast on Apollo 13, that too, that true. But you know, it's also you got give give a little summary. Yeah, I mean, Apollo. Give the 13, audience a little love, Peter. So <laughs> we love you. <laughs> the so uh, Apollo 13 was uh, Apollo 11 was the was the the Neil Armstrong. Buzz Aldrin first moon landing. Then there was Apollo twelve, which was the second moon landing. Right, and Al then, Bean, uh, Pete Conrad, and Dick Gordon. And and this one was the third, uh, the third Apollo flight intended to land on the moon. And by that point, it was starting to come become routine. And this was, um, um, you know, it was it was a, a, like almost a year later, not quite since the first flight. It was April nineteen seventy. And um, the ratings had dropped. You know, we won in the sense, in the Cold War sense. So people weren't paying as much attention. And the flight went up. And then two days into the flight, there was an explosion on the spacecraft, which threatened the lives of the crew. And they had to figure out a way to get back. And the crew and NASA and some of their suppliers and all the engineers involved and other astronauts and everyone came together to figure out a series of extremely difficult technical problems to keep them alive and get them back. And the 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 speed, the uh, ingenuity, and um, just the sort of uh, the feat that they accomplished was in many ways, the height of the space program sort of maybe equal to the whole Apollo program because it, it sort of illustrated all the strengths of the Apollo program in, in that brief period of time, uh, in the six days or whatever, or four days it took to get them back. Um, and it was, it was very dramatic and, and it was, it unfolded more or less live because all of a sudden the flight became interesting um, because it was not routine. And very quickly um, things were, were conveyed to the public uh, and, and were, they were brought up to speed. And, you know, this is the, the, the age of um, Walter Cronkite and uh, uh, what's his name? You know, like the other, the other anchors, um, mm-hmm. uh, Huntley Brinkley and all those guys. So, you know, there was mass media and TV and color TV and everybody was watching. And then it just became a sort of everybody was watching around the world the way they'd watched the moon landing. And so they watched basically with explanations how these guys got back home successfully. Um, and, and the movie is the story of that. And it's done in, in just a, an extremely effective way. And it's, you know, it kind of sucks you in. Like, this is one of those movies that if you, you know, if you're flipping around and you catch it in the middle, like, I always watch it to the end. Yeah. You know, like, like I watch five minutes of this thing and then I'm like, well, I may as well watch the last 90, you know. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just so engaging. well done. Yeah, it's very and, engaging. And, it, there's, and, you know, like, like you were sort of talking about Ron Howard, you know, there's a lot of characters. Like, you kind of get to know a lot of people in Mission Control the astronauts, their wives, Gene Krantz, you know, even some of the news media you kind of get a sense of like, 
and you kind of feel like you you get to know enough about them that they're all individuals and you can keep track of you know ecom and flight like the the flight you know fido and like all the people in mission control are given just enough of a characterization to make them well-rounded right and what that serves to do is it serves to bring you draw you in i mean that's what draws you in so effectively because you know enough to realize everything that's going on because you know who's doing what more or less so you you are completely um engaged by the story because the complexity um, pulls you in. It's almost, it's like being there. It's like knowing them. It's like having an inside view of what happens and then you become involved and then you care. And so there's a huge emotional payoff when they make it back. And, you know, that's really what he does so well. That's not easy to do. It's not but easy I, to I do. With, when I, I remember know, when I first saw it, I mean, I knew of course that they lived, but like, like, I was so tense as they were re-entering. I remember yep. thinking, like, why am I tense? Like, I know they make it. You know exactly what, you, yeah, you know that they use the abort guidance system, you know, instead of the main computer to fly back <laughs> because you read the, the Apollo transcripts. Um, <laughs> it's it's just, it's, it's very well done. It's probably, it's certainly the best movie about the Apollo program. I'll give it that. Um, I don't know if it's the best space movie ever, but it's the best movie about the Apollo program. Um, and, you know, Star, the, the, Star the, Trek the, one was the best space movie ever. <laughs> V'ger. Um, the the four principles. I mean, Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, um, Kevin Bacon and um, Gary Sinise. I mean, all of them just do a phenomenal job and you know in some ways i think you know hanks gets a lot of credit for this movie but the other three almost have tougher parts in a weird way mm-hmm. um especially um the ken mattingly character you know gary sinise so hanks took the part of level of course and then they ron howard said to sinise you can be any of the other three guys you want and then he chose to be Mattingly because he thought, you know, without Mattingly, they don't get home. That's an interesting part to play. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was an, it's an interesting choice, I guess, for him as an actor, because he also has the fewer people to play off of because he's, you know, half the movie. He's alone in the simulator. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and he makes a scene of a guy laying in a simulator in a building in Houston exciting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you I know, mean, staring at a voltmeter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically guys using duct tape to tape up an air filter is exciting. And guys, you know, looking sweaty and chain smoking, you know, in their fluorescent lights and trying to figure out how <laughs> I do many like watching amps, them all smoke. Yeah, like how many amps to turn the lights on. You know, I mean, this stuff is like about, it's about as obscure and dry as it gets. And he makes it, he makes you understand what they have to do, understand how difficult it is and understand how clever and their solutions are and how dedicated they are to finding them. And then you celebrate their victory in making each step of the way, you know, they have a bunch of small victories to challenges and, and, right. then, and, they, they, and they sort of bounce from problem to solution, problem to solution, but the problems are complicated each time. Yeah. They just keep going one thing after the other. And there's so many different people working on different aspects. It's just this incredibly complex problem. You know, by the way, that you mentioned the filter, the sort of squared around carbon dioxide scrubbers. Yeah. 
um, the one that they made is on display in Houston. Like if if you're at if you when you're at Johnson Space Center, it's on display. I remember I was <clears throat> I was once walking through and I was uh, down there once, and I forget which building it's in, but it's just in a little glass case, and I just recognized it immediately. And it's just sort of sitting there, and it's just literally, you know. You know, socks and duct tape and saran wrap holding this stuff together. Yeah, and it's a pretty hose. cool. It's, it's sort of like a testament to ingenuity. Yep. Um, you know who else is really good in this? I have to say is Kathleen um, Quinlan. Yes, you, you took it right out of my mouth. Yeah. She is so good in this. She's really pretty in this, but she's sort of believable as someone's wife. Like she's not so pretty that she's like, God, oh, come on, you know. They like, got her in. Like, yeah, she's got nineteen seventy, you know, hair and makeup, and it looks real. And she, and she, I think she was nominated for something, an Oscar or something for this. I'm pretty sure. She, and I, you know, it's funny because she first came to my attention. She's in the Twilight Zone movie. Uh, and that was sort of the first movie I ever saw her in, but um, but she's really good in this, and like she's sort of the anchor, you know, on the Earth side of things. And we sort of compare her to, to sort of Claire Foy's sort of brittle performance as you know Jan Armstrong, mm-hmm. like like you'd want to come home to Kathleen Quinlan. I don't know if you'd want to come home to Jan Armstrong, <laughs> you know, yeah. like just oh yeah yeah. Well, the, you know, they're still married, you know. I mean, that tells you something. He's like 90, you know? Yeah, and he's, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, She did, by the way, in real life, she did lose her wedding ring down the drain. Hmm. But she, in real life, she got it back. (laughs) Yeah, they don't really show what happened in the movie. (laughs) No, no. So I guess the movie doesn't actually say she doesn't. Um, But she's really good in this. And I got to call out perhaps the greatest Star Trek connection of all time. You mean um, uh, Clint Howard? Right. Clint Howard is Baylock from the Corbomite <laughs> Maneuver. Clint Howard's in, but he's in every one of his brother's movies. I know, movies. but he's Baylock. I mean, I was sipping Tranya when I was watching this thing. <laughs> <laughs> he has a big part in this one, too, because sometimes some movies he's got a really, like, a real cameo. Yeah. But he, he has plays, a big part. He plays Ecom, who in real life is Cy Liebergott. And if you read uh, the Lovell book, Lost Moon, that I think he wrote with Jeff Kluger, um, uh, Cy Liebergott is a major, major character in the book. He's the sort of mission control person that uh, Lovell and Kluger focused on the most. So a lot of the mission control stuff is sort of told through Cy Liebergott's story. And that's one of the reasons that they... They have him, although they give him one of the best shots in the movie, um, uh, Clint Howard. And it's that scene where he's stressed and he sort of slowly takes his glasses off his face and you can see his monitors reflected in his eyeglasses. It's a great shot. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And when Um, he's thinking, he's trying to figure out what to do. Right. How do we get through this? Yeah. It's like one of the early moments. He also has another great bit where he... He doesn't want to say it over the loops. Like when they talk back and forth to the astronauts, those are referred to as the loops. And he doesn't want to say it over the loop. He takes his headset off and he walks over to to Ed Harris slash Gene Kranz and he says, you know, the Odyssey is dying. You know, like he doesn't want that recorded. Right. Uh, but he, he knows that it's the truth, you know, and he's the one who says that they have to shut everything down. So let's so let's talk about um there's a couple things I want to, I want to talk about, you know, some technical aspects of how they made it. And then is there anything that they, 
uh, in the real story that they changed or, you know, you know, what really happened technically. So for example, you know, the air filter thing is real. Right. Um, the air filter thing is most definitely, you know, real. Fred Hayes really got sick. He actually had a UTI that, you know, they make a point of, you know, he's sick and he's, he has a fever during that. He's got the chills, you know, he's sick. So I think, I think Fred Hayes got his, so they're supposed to wear this sort of condom like device to capture their urine. Yeah. Con I don't think they're supposed to wear it all the time. And I think they're supposed to sort of take it on and take it off, but he kept his on too long. He probably refluxed. Yeah. Uh, you know, dirty urine. Uh, but they think that that's why he got sick. But but you know what's interesting? That I'll tell you what they didn't show. They, well, they show a little bit of, but but the, it's kind of an interesting backstory. Is maybe more than any other flight in the Apollo program, this flight was like musical chairs. And the only thing that they sort of hint at is that the original crew got bumped. Because yeah. of Al Shepard's, they call it an ear infection, but it's really it's his many ears disease. But, but I mean, almost everybody at some point was flying on Apollo thirteen. Like the original crew for Apollo thirteen is the Apollo ten backup crew, which is Ed Mitchell, Don Isley, and Gordon Cooper of Mercury fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cooper was not popular in the astronaut office. And Isley got a divorce and had an affair. So he was considered not somebody that they wanted in front of the press. So they got bumped. Then it was supposed to be Shepard, Mitchell, uh, and Stu Rusa. And they were going to be the, the prime crew for Apollo 13. But then Shepard sort of moved forward with treatment for his Meniere's disease. And there was sort of a unspoken but widely understood uh, awareness that Shepard was really rusty and they were very worried about him because he hadn't flown since Mercury. Right. Like he had, he had, he had sat out all of Gemini. So then they got bombed. Then it's right. And his Mercury Jim, flight was like 20 minutes. Five, yeah. Five <laughs> minutes in space or something. And so then it's Lovell, Mattingly and Hayes um, with the backup crew being Charlie Duke, John uh, Young and Jack, Jack Swigert, right? And then Mattingly gets bumped because of his exposure to measles, hence Jack Swigert. So, like, I mean, that's an unusually convoluted story. And a lot of the flights had sort of personnel shifting, but this one had more than most. By the way, just on Jack Swigert, yeah. if you ever go to the Denver airport, there's a nice statue of Jack Swigert at the Denver airport. It used to be in the main terminal, and they moved it. It's down by the tram, the little bus, the little train you take. Yeah. But like, I go to the Denver airport sometimes, and more than once I've sort of gone out of my way to sort of take a look at the Jack Swigert statue. Um, you know who, by the way, they want? They originally wanted to play Jim Lovell in this movie. Yeah, wasn't it Brad Pitt or something? It was Travolta. Oh, Travolta. Yeah, it was Travolta, and then he couldn't do it, and then they wanted Brad Pitt, and Brad Pitt said no because he wanted to make Seven with David right. Fincher. And then then uh, Ron Howard knew that Tom Hanks was interested in doing an Apollo movie, so he reached out to Hanks, and that's how they got Hanks. Um, but, you know, but to, to answer your question broadly... 
most of the movie is pretty accurate. I mean, they cut some stuff out and they sh- they they merge a couple of things. Like there's there's actually several more burns than you ever see. You know, they only really show one or two correct. They really just had that one scene where they have to do the burn. Yeah. Um but there's actually several other burns uh that they had to do. And like for example, there's that great scene where they're debating, do they turn around, right, and use the right. SPS engine on the service module, or do they do a free return trajectory? And there's that great line where they're talking about turning around, and that engineer stands up, and he goes, no, sir, no, sir, no, sir. And then he sort of, like, cuts everybody off and says, you have to do a free return trajectory. And they sort of imply in the movie that they were on it, but they weren't. Like, they had to do, I believe, two burns to get on the right free return trajectory that are not shown in the movie. But again, I mean, that's just really a decision, you know, to save time and make the the important burn later on more dramatic. And they do have a scene to sort of show that they've got to get on the free return trajectory, you know. And that scene is also, it's it's some good exposition for the audience because then it explains to the audience why they keep going all the way around the moon when they've had this problem. But... I mean, most of the movie is pretty darn accurate. Um, right. The other the thing. Actual, the actual, the Houston, we've had a problem quote, they kind of jack up a little bit because both, because Jack Swigert actually said it first. Yeah. Um, and then Lovell said a version of it later, but neither one of them actually said sort of the movie tagline. They just sort of like, they sort of dorked around with it a little bit to make it look a little bit better. Because I remember the that line, Houston, we've had a problem, is on the poster. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that they didn't um, spend a lot of time on was uh, one of the major problems was they had to separate um, separate the ships um, as they were getting close to Earth. And, um, you know, they couldn't really use the normal thrusters because they didn't really have anything turned on or power or all that stuff, like to be able to like get rid of the uh, the the lunar module. Um, you know. Although they they show them separate from the lunar module. Yeah, but I but I think they they actually like they generated they 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 kicked out the the lunar module by like pressurizing the the tunnel in between them. Like they pressurized right. the the tunnel <clears throat> and then like shot it off. Um, you know that that created some force to separate them. And that was another listen, problem because oh, they were worried yeah. they would hit each other, you know, like they would hit them. And if you listen to the the like the transcripts, uh, the audio is bad for a lot of it. Um, yeah, their signal and, was was not well. Good. But they they were being they were being affected by the S four B. So the Apollo, uh, the Saturn V third stage, the S four B. So people think that you know just the command and service module will go to the moon, but the third stage goes to the moon as well. Right. Um, cause it's got to, you know, it pushes them there and then they separate from it. But the, the S4B, the third stage was giving them all sorts of grief in terms of messing with the radio. And then the S4B intentionally hits the moon so that they could generate a moon quake so that the seismometer left by Apollo 12, uh, could measure it. Right. Uh, and then when the S4B impacts, the communications get much better and they don't talk about that at all. But if you listen to the... Uh, the audio, like up until the S4B impact, they are fighting, you know, with a lot of garbled stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and they had, they really turned off everything. 
because they yeah, no, they you know, they weren't they joking conserve. when they make that that line that you know Isaac Newton's in the driver's seat, right? Because basically they were gonna. I mean, the other thing is you got to realize the electronics they were using were the essentially the earliest um, microcomputers that were made. I mean, they were the first integrated circuits that were built was for Apollo uh, Apollo guidance computers and Apollo control systems, and they had you know these computers on board that. They used a ton of power. I mean, th- this was not like a little tiny cell phone, low wattage chip. I mean, they just they they needed a lot of power, even for those, even for and the computers. And to be cooled and stuff. You know, the computers were right, and they were like water cooled. Yeah, and they, <laughs> you know, the computers used like you know fifty, sixty, eighty watts each, and they had like three or four of them. Yeah, no, they're plus, like washing machines. Right, plus eat all the rest of the things that used power. So that, you know, they, they had a tremendous amount of power usage and then they had to shut down everything except for batteries in the lab. And um, they just, they had to be very careful. And they were freezing because all the heaters were turned off. You know, they didn't have their fuel cells. So um, to generate electricity... But you know, using uh, hydrogen and oxygen that was stored in tanks, so they couldn't. Um, they just were basically turned down to really a dangerous level. Um, the other thing is, you know, in the movie they show all, that everything gets covered in condensation, which was true because they spent days in there and the whole place because you know radiated heat out and was basically at freezing and it was heated essentially only from their body heat and then whatever small amount of sunlight they were getting so yeah, which was not much the the windows in the in the in the lunar module and the command module are intentionally small right and you know i mean it's not like the ships are really absorbing that much radiant heat from the sun so that you know they're radiating out um probably a, a lot so um you know they had enough that they weren't freezing to the point where it was, you know, they were going to freeze to death instantly, but they were around, you know, at thirties Fahrenheit, you know, near zero um, Celsius. Right. And, so and they're all, just wearing their little beta cloth suits that are designed to keep them cool, not warm. Right. And so all this condensation um, is on everything and they have to power all this stuff back up. And this is in the setting of not only, do these things require all this all this wattage um they have to get turned back on they're all wet and this is this is not only had they just had some kind of electrical short happen that blew up part of the ship but apollo one had had an electrical short cause a fire and kill everyone so you know i mean everything they had to do was just fraught with with terror um, you know, they basically, this thing that's constantly shorting out gets covered in water and they have to turn on all these switches <laughs> and keep their fingers crossed. You know, it's crazy. And there's that great shot of like all the condensation sort of like on the panels, you know? Right. And then it drips onto them. Like when they get gravity, when they start to decelerate in the atmosphere and it's like dripping all over them, like rain. Wait, so so we have to talk about the zero G because this is real zero G, like yeah. that's not CGI zero G. Yeah, let's move on to how they made the movie because they did it. You know, he he used these judicious effects so well. 
Um, right. So they, they made, they built the set on the vomit comet or, you know, on the, a training plane that dies. Yeah, no, I think it was arcs. one of the actual NASA, you know, vomit comets. Right. So these are the training planes that NASA has jets that they pad out the interiors and they shoot people up there and then they, they make repeated climbs and dives and they dive at exactly, um, the, you know, falling speed. Uh, you know, they, they accelerate at 9.8 meters per second, um, down and that creates free fall. So uh, simulates zero G. So, um, within the vomit comet, you're basically floating around and people get sick because of <laughs> their inner ear, um, you know, getting sick, uh, causing motion sickness. And they basically built sets on there and then they filmed certain scenes in the movie on the sets on the vomit comet and they did um they did all the vomit comet scenes and i think in like just three or four days um you know they did the the, the, the what are they there they i think they're kc-135s and i know that they run them out of ellington field which is the sort of nearest airport or military airfield near the Johnson Space Center. But I think they flew like something like 60 or 80 parabolas, like a lot of them. Yeah, because there's several minutes of in the movie of several minutes. And they only get about 30 seconds of of simulated zero G at a time in those flights because nine. Here, actually, here, here I looked it up. So they did 612 dives. Each one gave them 25 seconds of zero G. Man, that's and a in lot. the end, they had fifty-four minutes of weightless footage. They Man, didn't use all of it, but that's a lot of that's a lot of time. I know. <laughs> I mean, they, they did it more in a few days. I mean, that means they spent weeks doing that. No, I don't think so. I think that they they did all the well because you know they would go up and they would do like you know ten or twenty or thirty parabolas in a flight. I think they did it all in just a few days, is what I read. Hmm. Well, they and did. You could I imagine, mean, you know, you could imagine too that they. You know, they probably only had access to the equipment for so long. Well, think about the planning just to plan the scenes that they had to shoot in that short time because they're shooting scenes from throughout the flight. Just the planning and changing set design up in a plane, changing makeup up in a plane, changing, you know, the things they needed to change to make the scenes correspond so they could edit it in later. That alone is insane amount of planning needed. And oh, then I know. Plus shooting everything, acting, um, just right. all the, doing the all this camera, the, the lighting, all this stuff in the vomit comet is is insane. It's you know level of difficulty filmmaking level of difficulty one thousand. Well, but you know what? It pays off. Like, it's all on the screen. It looks great. And he doesn't, he just shoots it in there and he mixes it in with just normal sets so well. Um, and, the, you know, the sets all look so good. You know, like yep. the the command and service module were built by the people at the Kansas Cosmosphere who just do an amazing job. And I've been in the old mission control room and when I saw this, and I've, I've been in the old mission control room several times. Like, I have a bunch of corny photos of me sitting in all the consoles. Um, <laughs> and I, when I saw this movie, I thought that they had filmed it in the room. Like, they, it's so perfect. And that's a, that's a complete set. They built that. That's all from scratch. Yeah. 
And apparently the set was elevated because underneath they had all the guys running the displays to their computers. Hmm. Uh, but I'm telling you that I was I was absolutely convinced that they had filmed it in the real the real room. What's interesting when you go in the real room is, you know, like it's all it doesn't it's it looks a little different now because they use it for the shuttle for a long time before they move to the, the modern mission control. Yeah. So like when you go into that room, it it's it's not so much the Apollo era control room, it's the shuttle control room is what it was when they shut it down and that's just how they left it. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, they, um, they, that was for work. You know, it was, you know, they didn't preserve it. No, and, and for example, the original Mission Control was in Florida, and that's what they show in the right stuff. The Mercury Control Room is in Florida. Right. Um, it didn't switch over to Houston until Gemini. Um, I think, you know, just since we're talking about the right stuff a little bit, you know, once again, by the way, Ed Harris, really strong. Yep. You know, playing a very, very different kind of role. Right. And also very central in basically all of NASA's, you know, missions from, uh, for, for decades is, uh, Gene Yeah, Krantz. no, I think, I think, I think, um, Gene Krantz, he worked well into the shuttle era. Oh yeah. I think he, I mean, he was there a long time. I think he retired in like, they, they even mentioned in the movie he retired like recently before the movie came out. Yeah, I have a signed copy of his book. His book is called Failure is Not an Option, which apparently he never said in real life, but he liked the quote so much. Right. He just kind of took it for the title of his own autobiography, which is interesting to think about. Right. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, I don't know. I mean, all the pieces fit together, you know, like the home front, mission control, the news media, them aboard the ship. Um, Mattingly in the simulator, you know, this, like, it's sort of like I'm, I, while I'm saying this, I'm sort of meshing my fingers together, but all the pieces of this thing fit together really nicely. Yep. And then he, he intensifies the drama as they get close and it's, the movie is edited together so well, paced so well, you care about, you're so involved. And then when they finally get to reentry, it's incredibly tense. You know, like you said, you, you know what's going to happen and you still are completely involved when you watch. And I, I watched the movie again before we, you know, are doing this for, for the purposes of this, this discussion. And, and, you know, I've seen it several times and it still hooks me. You know, I mean, I still felt, I still was tense when they were going through... <laughs> <laughs> Are they going to make it? Yeah, that you know, four minutes of blackout. <laughs> well, that's funny because when I was, it reminds me of when I saw the right stuff, and uh, there's that bit where you know when Jaeger breaks the sound barrier, um, you know, they, they're for, for a minute they think he's dead, mm -hmm. and I remember I said to my dad, I was just a kid, I said to my dad, "Does he die?" And my dad said, "He was in an AC Delco battery commercial last night." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess he lives. You know, I didn't know anything back then. That's a great dad a dad response. Um, the, the effects are important, too, I think, because there's no NASA footage in this. There's not one frame of stock footage, and everything is done with models and CG. The only, <clears throat> the only footage that, that they use is 
uh, is TV coverage. So they, they use Walter Cronkite and, and, you know, uh, Huntley and those guys. And so the, the press, um, coverage is real and that it helps a lot, I think. Because anybody who, you know, if you're, if you're too young to ever have heard Walter Cronkite, it probably doesn't have any impact. But if every, everybody who's, I don't, I don't know, age 40, maybe. Yeah. 40, 40, 45 and older. Um, they still know his, his voice. Not that we're saying we're those ages. (laughs) Um, you know, the guy is, uh, the his voice accompanied many important events in the 20th century. And he, the TV, the early TV journalists at the, of the 20th century did that for decades and had a level of respect that is no longer around. And, um, their, their sound in the, in the picture lends a lot to it. And also sort of the, you know, the quality of sound, not just their voices, but, you know, the way voices sounded over TVs that had one little speaker, you know? Yeah, and the way they speak and they are, I mean, right, the quality and just the, the, they have a certain gravity and they have a certain, um, it's high quality commentary. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. they there was no, they didn't have 24-7 news then. So they didn't right, it's have, not CNN looking to, you know have a breaking news story every five minutes. Right. You know, they get excited when there's a shooting because then they have something to talk about and people are going to tune in. Their ratings go up. I mean, it's not like that where they just have to fill hour after hour with, you know, something to talk about. Um, they didn't have that. So they didn't, they didn't have to pad. They could be yeah. on, you know, they were on when they needed to be. Um, can we go back to the effects for just a little bit? Yeah. Um, the launch sequence. I mean, there's a couple of incredible effect scenes. I think the the most impressive of which is the launch sequence, uh, which I guess is a mixture of models and CG. Yeah, the CG um, looks like early CG. It looks uh, like the ice falling off the rocket when it takes yeah, off. Yeah, the rocket CG. itself. Uh, it looks. It looks CG. It was but that just that whole early. sequence is great. Like the music is really good. They're intercutting between inside the command module and mission control and outside. Yep. Um, and it's just it's really really riveting. And they do the countdown in such a good way. There was a long time where you know, like when you would go to Best Buy, and that scene would be on a loop on a lot of the TVs because they wanted to really sort of show off what the TV could do or how it looked. You know, and that's what they would use. They would use that that launch scene from Apollo 13. Um, and lots of the shots of the sort of Odyssey and the Aquarius just sort of passing you by at various distances look really good and sort of emphasize like the, their aloneness, right, or how far they are from Earth. And I really love the sort of dream sequence where Lovell walks on the moon. Yeah. You know, that it, because it's funny because you know, you could imagine that they were like, oh, man, how can we have a scene where they, they actually walk on the moon? Because it'd be great for the movie, but they can't do it. And the way that they work it in is it's just level sort of forlornly imagining what he's never going to get. Right. You know, this was his second trip to the moon, right? He was on Apollo 8. They talk about that in the movie. Um, but, you know, this was, you know, this was it for him. Like he already announced this was his last flight. You know, he gets two trips around. And there's that great line where he says... 
where they're looking out the window where Swigert and Hayes are looking at the window and, and he, they say like, do you want to look? And he says, no, I've seen it. Yep. Like he's bitter. Like he's angry that he, you know, like the whole thing fell apart. There's a couple of lines from this staying with this theme. There's a couple of lines in this movie that I quote a lot. And, and one of which is like when, you know, they tell him to shut down the fuel cells based on, you know, uh, um, Cy Liebergott slash, you know, Clint Howard's recommendation. There's that bit where he goes, shutting down the fuel cells, mm -hmm. the full smash. So, like, I've sort of, like, stolen that line, the full smash, a couple of times when I want to convey, like, we're doing something big that we can't go back on. And the other line from this movie that I that I stole and used is a few bumps and we're hauling the mail. Anytime before I go on a big trip, I kind of say that. Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, is there anything bad about this movie? I mean, it's a little schmaltzy, but it's based on real events, so you allow it because it really happened. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, is there anything bad about this movie? I don't, boy, that's a tough thing to say that there's a bad thing in Apollo 13. Like, it looks good. It's well written. The score is great. The effects are good. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, they, I guess some things that they do oversimplify, like they make, Right, they, make, they could have added twenty five minutes and put in a little and, and made it a little bit more dork friendly, maybe. But that's a, a nitpick. And they portray Swigert. I think they portray him maybe a little bit off. Like they sort of emphasize his sort of like swinging bachelorhood, which I don't know if how true that was. I mean, I know that he was a bachelor, um, and they also kind of you know like they uh, they call him rookie. You know, park that thing, rookie, when he's doing the the lunar module extraction from the S four B, but. You know, by all accounts, he was super competent and he had designed a ton of the procedures that they use in the movie. Um, so they sort of, you know, maybe they portray him as more of a rookie than he was in terms of his they make, experience, right, for, although he hadn't flown before. Yeah, but neither had, had Fred Hayes. Did he fly? Fred Hayes, I'm pretty sure that he this was on was, Gemini, maybe. Oh no! This, he, this was his this only was flight. his first flight. Yeah. yeah, his first and only flight. Whereas yeah. I think this is Lovell's fourth flight. Yeah, it's his fourth flight because he did Apollo 8 and he did two Gemini flights. Lovell was like, you know, was a really um, one of the most highly placed sort of astronauts at that point. Um, did Lovell fly once or twice? He flew. Lovell flew Gemini, Gemini twice. Nine, two Gemini then, flights. Yeah, and he Apollo did nine 8. and 12. That's right. He did Gemini nine and 12 and then Apollo 8 and Apollo 13. That's a lot. I mean, that, that guy a wrote a Saturn V twice yep right who else wrote a saturn five twice a couple uh, of the john other young guys that ran gene on, ran cernan on yeah right um that might be it because i think three people because uh, the guys on apollo eight was frank borman jim lovell and bill anders uh borman and, and anders borman, didn't fly again borman didn't oh no, Borman didn't fly again. And then um, Apollo 10, right, where they went down to 50 nautical miles, that's that's Gene Cernan, John Young, and I got to look up who the third about guy Charlie is. What Charlie Duke? Charlie Duke walked on the moon on Apollo 16. Um, but, oh, Tom Stafford, John Young, and Gene Cernan are the Apollo 10 crew. But John... Charlie Duke, who's the Capcom for Apollo 11, so you hear his voice everywhere, but Ch uh, Charlie Duke walked on the moon on Apollo 16. Um, 
Anyway, we're getting distracted. <laughs> but Lovell, this was Lovell's Lovell fourth was flight. Lovell was really senior. So, so they make they make Swire. By the way, do you know who Lovell wanted to play him? Who he thought he looked like? Yeah, I, I read it and I can't remember. Costner. Who. Right. He thought he looked like Costner. Honestly, he does kind of look like Costner. Yeah. He doesn't really look like Tom Hanks at all, but no. And Tom and Hanks. um and Gary Sinise looks nothing like Ken Mattingly at all. Right. Uh, although, although um, uh, Kevin Bacon, he he's a he's a passable uh, Jack Swagger. He is. Fred Hayes uh, doesn't look like um, Ed, Ed Harris is wearing a very glaring and obvious toupee. I honestly, they needed a little CGI for uh, for Ed <laughs> Harris's toupee because it looks pretty fake. Yeah, it's all right. You know, the- like this, you can see like the exact line where the toupee ends and Ed Harris's hair actually begins. The vest looks um, real though. Yeah, the vest. The vest is... Where have I seen the vest? I think the vest... I've seen the vest at a museum somewhere. I, it was either his Apollo 11 or his Apollo 13 vest. Uh, but I've seen somewhere in real life, I've seen a, a Gene Krantz vest. How old is Lovell? Lovell is... He's 90. I just looked. Jesus. He's born in 1928. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, he was 42, 43 at Apollo 13. He was one of the yeah. most senior astronauts. Yeah, I mean, in comparison, you know, Armstrong walked on the moon at 38, and he wasn't a, you know, he had been around the block, right? Uh, and he was, he was still in his 30s still. Um, it shows you that how hard it is to make a movie about the Apollo program, you know, um, like there's, we talked last time about From the Earth to the Moon, which is 12 one-hour episodes, with really 11 of which are about the Apollo program. The first episode is about Mercury and Gemini, and the other 11 are about Apollo. But it's it's hard to do a movie about the Apollo program, you yeah. know, because you've got to wrestle with all this technical stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, out well, of I mean, all historical... Um, historical fiction or, or movies about any of this stuff. I mean, doing anything about astronauts is extra hard because it's not just like doing a Western um, because no right. one cares. No, you, you need so much. Yeah, you need the detail because it's what everything's about. Yeah, I mentioned earlier, I mean, obviously some of these, I'm talking, and I'm not just talking about documentaries. There's a lot of documentaries, but you know what's a really good movie? Have you ever seen The Dish? Yeah, that's so. a really that's about Parks Observatory in uh, in Australia and about how you know they were basically responsible for relaying the signals, and it's you know it's like it's truly a movie about the Apollo program, but it's done in such a different way. That's right. a that's a pretty technically oriented movie about the Apollo program. But what else is there? You know, there's First Man. A bunch of documentaries. Is there's really a ton there of is. documentaries, but are there other movie movies about the Apollo program? I don't. I'm mean, again. I'm not talking about documentary. I think that might be it. I mean, I, I there's that 1996 TV movie about Apollo 11 that we talked about last time. But yeah, there's not much. And there's a it's bunch of stuff from like you know. When the when movies would come out, right, there'd be like a C-SPAN thing or there'd be like a conference and they'd get some astronauts around and they would they would uh, they would talk and they'd talk in a place where it was recorded and it would be, you know, record for posterity. So there are sort of things that were on C-SPAN or PBS or that kind of thing. 
Yeah, um, and there's lots. I think there's lots of good Nova shows about the Apollo program. But uh, I mean, this is kind of the high watermark for you know accurate movies about space flight, right? Yep. I mean that are that are not fiction, right? I right. Mean, there's that a million are fiction movies, but this is, yeah, no, this is really good. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I, I love this movie. Like, I mean, I've seen this movie a lot, and I watched it yet again for the podcast. <laughs> um, and it has Baylock in it. I mean, come on. <laughs> You know, uh, one of the some of the some of the um, some of the flight uh, like the mission control flight director people, some of them reprise their roles in From the Earth to the Moon. Like mm-hmm. I was just watching a little From the Earth to the Moon the other day, and some of them some of them don't have lines, and some of them have one or two lines. Um, uh, and like for example, in there's the episode uh, about Apollo twelve, which is called "That's All There Is," I think. Uh, that focuses heavily on some of the guys in Mission Control, and it's definitely they called back some of the same actors. It's probably as like a little wink and nod, you know. In in the from the Earth to the Moon, they have episodes on Apollo One, Apollo Seven, Apollo Eight, Nine, Ten, Eleven, Twelve, uh, pretty much all of them. But the, they do the Apollo Thirteen episode differently. Like I'm just sort of mentally ticking them off. They pretty much do all the Apollo missions, but. Um, the way they do Apollo 13 is, you know, they knew that people had seen the Apollo 13 story. So the Apollo 13 story in From the Earth to Moon is told purely from the Earth perspective, mostly focusing on the media, sort of like how the reporters got the story and how the the media reported the story and how people got caught up in it. But none of the From the Earth to the Moon episode really focuses on what happens inside the spacecraft. They just... You know, that's kind of the missing two hours that they figure people could just go and watch this other movie. And it was redundant. I think Tom Hanks probably felt it was redundant to do it again. Hmm. Yeah, you, you know, we could, you could have like a like a real like, you know, like a watching marathon where if you watch like the right stuff, you know, uh, First Man, all 12 hours are from, from the Earth to the Moon and Apollo 13. Like that'd be a pretty cool viewing party. You yeah, know. you end it with like Stargate as a view to the future. <laughs> Stargate, oh Jesus! I think you and I saw Stargate together. Yeah, it was, it was not, awful. not my fave. No, yeah, I was that's just like, thinking, what's the opposite of Apollo thirteen? That was the first thing I thought of. Stargate, Stargate. yeah, that's the mathematical inverse of Stargate. <laughs> did you ever see, by the way, the mirror, um, mirror? One might say. Did you ever see Apollo eighteen, the movie? No. I don't you know, think I ever knew they made a movie called Apollo 18. Yeah, it's it's actually it's a B horror sci-fi movie. It's kind of like a found footage. It's kind of like the Blair Witch Project in space. Hmm. Um and it 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 hypothesizes that there was a secret Apollo 18 mission that was a sort of uh like the NASA buried it and pretended it didn't happen because the astronauts all died. But it's sort of an interesting sort of like found footage horror sci-fi movie um, that if, if you ever want to sort of like throw away 90 minutes of your life, uh, <laughs> go ahead and watch Apollo 18. I got it from the Red Box, and uh, I, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that it wasn't the worst uh, straight-to-video Red Box movie I've ever seen. <laughs> Um, well, at but least it, has it doesn't. A, it doesn't say the moon landing was fake. At least, oh, yeah, no, right. no, no. But it, it has. Uh, it has some pretty. They they go to some pretty good lengths to make it look good. Like I wonder what they 
how they what sets they use for that. Um, because the sets it take a lot of it takes place in the command and service module. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how they did it. I wonder if there's some of the same sets that they used in Apollo. Yeah, I'm going to look really, really quick on IMDb and just sort of see if they talk about the sets. Because the sets look really good. I just wonder, they must be reused from a bigger budget project or from some museum or something. Yeah, I know. The, IM, the, the IMDb doesn't say anything. But the I remember when I was watching, I was like, wow, these sets and, and spacesuits look pretty good. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, should we wrap anything else on Apollo 13? No, I think anybody, I mean, it's worth seeing if you haven't, for sure. And if you're somebody who watches Apollo 13 and finds the details interesting, you know, read Lovell's book, um, you know, read Chaikin's uh, From the Earth to the Moon, and you can go to the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal and the Apollo Flight Journal that are free online and are just incredible multimedia resources for all these Apollo missions. I'm, I'm not going to tell you how much of these, uh, uh, I, how much time I've spent on those two websites, but believe you me, it's a lot. And uh, if you when want, they, when they came out, it, they were just incredible resources. And if you want the lower information content, but just beautiful to look at version, you can, all the Apollo photographs from every camera, every roll of film is digitized and is available through NASA also. And so basically every shot, every piece of film the astronauts ever shot is, is available to look at. Yeah. Digitized. And yeah. And by the way, like the ultimate proof that they went to the moon is, is like how boring so much of it is. You know, like I always say, like if we were going to fake the moon landing and have Kubrick do it, it would have been more exciting. But when you listen to them on the moon, it's like hours and hours and hours of them talking about samples. Okay. I'm going to put this rock in sample bag for 12 uh, wait, was that 412? Uh, beep. Uh, actually, that's 413, Jack. Oh, okay, sorry. You know, like, that's what they talk about on the moon. So if you ever want to prove that they land on the moon, it's that uh, it's that when they get there, it's mostly pretty workaday, you know, technical stuff. Yep. All righty. What are we doing next week? Uh, we'll come up we with something. We should do Apollo 18. Stargate. <laughs> Star- uh, Apollo 18 is better than Stargate. Some people are going to listen to this and say that I'm wrong, but... Listen. I don't know. There are a lot of people who love Stargate, but I am not one of them. Yeah, I, no, I'm not one of them either. And it's uh, and the worst thing is, you know, we always go off the rails for the last two minutes of the podcast. The Stargate idea is such a great idea, and they Oof. did it so clunky. The show I never really got into because the show was sort of like... You know, it was like Stargate of the Week. It was but called the, I, Stargate. I no, I get know, into but they, you know, every week they had to go through. You know, uh, but but like the idea that you know you could find an artifact that would you know take you transdimensionally is such a great idea. One of the um, oh, one of the novels by Jack McDevitt. Actually, two of the novels by Jack McDevitt deal with the discovery of a Stargate. Uh, in the Midwest on, on Native American land. So technically the Native Americans own the Stargate and they administer it. Um, and the books deal with the fact that like you can go through the Stargate and come out somewhere else, but they have to figure out where that other place is. Do they use um, it to sell, you know, discount cigarettes to aliens? 
<laughs> no, I, I, you know, I read them a long time ago. I, I don't think that they ever meet aliens. Like, I think when you go through the Stargate and the McDevitt books, you come out at a station, but the station is abandoned. And then from the station, you can, you can travel through other gates to planets, but I don't think they ever find anybody. Like, they go to the other planets and there's nobody there. But a lot of the books deal with, like, them trying to sort of puzzle out, like, is it even safe to go through? And then when you get through and you end up somewhere... You know, can you breathe? Like, that's what the book is about. It's about the sort of the mechanics of if you actually found a Stargate, you know, would you just asphyxiate on the other side? They couldn't find any, you know, they couldn't find any people that kind of dashed their plans to expand the uh, casino dramatically. (laughs) (laughs) All right, should we end there? (laughs) All right. All right. Next week, Apollo 18. (laughs) All right. We'll find something. Thanks, everybody. Bye.